listening to the Digital Hammurabi podcast, where we bring the ivory tower of academia to you, because we believe that ancient history is for everyone. We're your hosts, Megan Lewis and Dr. Joshua Bowen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first Digital Hammurabi podcast. I'm Megan Lewis. And I'm Dr. Joshua Bowen. We believe that the ancient world is for everyone, and we're here to share our knowledge and passion with you. The topic of today's podcast is the invention of writing, specifically cuneiform writing, which is the first known writing system. First, we'll give some information on what exactly cuneiform is. Then we'll move on to our literary section with a brief commentary on a Mesopotamian myth that explains why writing was invented, and then a narration of that myth, Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata. Finally, we have a fantastic interview with the wonderful Dr. Jennifer Ross, Professor of Art and Archaeology at Hood College. It's a fascinating conversation that covers how and why scholars think writing was invented in ancient Mesopotamia. Without further ado, let's get going. The first evidence we have of written human language comes from Mesopotamia, that's ancient Iraq, sometime during the 4th millennium BCE. The writing system itself is called cuneiform and remained in use up until the end of the Seleucid era at the end of the 1st millennium BCE. The name cuneiform comes from the Latin word cuneus, meaning wedge, and refers to the shape of the cuneiform signs. As we'll see in this episode's literary reading, the Mesopotamians considered their writing system to resemble nails, and a term used sometimes among Assyriology students is chicken scratch, which really gives you all the information you need about how challenging it can be to decipher ancient handwriting. Cuneiform was probably developed first to write the Sumerian language, but was later adapted to record Akkadian, Hittite, Ugaritic, Akkadian, Hittite, Ugaritic, Old Persian, and many others. Cuneiform started as pictograms, no grammar, no phonetics, just pictorial depictions of objects like woman, bread, mountain. Signs could be combined to express more complex concepts, like the signs for mouth and bread were combined to express the verb to eat. Over time, these linear drawings were replaced by more stylized images that were created using a reed stylus. The reed stylus is what gives cuneiform its characteristic wedge shapes. The signs also took on phonetic values, meaning that homophonous words could be written with the same sign. Unfortunately, this doesn't mean that there's only one sign for each phonetic value. We still have several signs, for example, with the phonetic value E, that each have different meanings in Sumerian. The move towards phonetization meant that cuneiform could be used to write other languages, as I explained above, Akkadian, though some Sumerian pictograms did continue to be used. The creation of cuneiform is part of the Mesopotamian literary text, Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata, in which King Enmerkar engages in a competition of wits with the King of Arata, culminating in Enmerkar's eventual victory. Enmerkar is a king of the city of Uruk, and he has this, there's this trope where he marches to the city of Arata to fight against it, to uh, subdue it. The overview of the text is essentially that Enmerkar seeks to subjugate Arata There are three challenges that the Lord of Arata sends back. This is all done via messenger. And then finally, Enmerkar has ultimate victory. There's some some little interesting tidbits in here. We'll touch on a couple of them. So the story starts sort of setting this early times motif, and this is something that's common in Sumerian and Akkadian 
literary and uh, magical texts, this early time motif. So in this text, it's before Dilmun existed, which is a place that they did a lot of trade with. And it's sort of a mysterious place, pristine place. The text says it was before commerce was practiced. And this is going to play in because this text shows the invention of writing. But it says the Lord of Arata placed on his head the golden crown of Inanna. But he did not please her like the Lord of Kulaba and Kulaba's Uruk. And so what the story is saying is that both Arata, the, the city of Arata, and Kulaba, Uruk, have the favor to some degree of Inanna, the goddess. And there's this competition sort of back and forth. Who does she, whom does she love more? You know, whom does she favor more? And in this story, Enmerkar says, I want Inanna to favor me over the Lord of Arata, and I want Arata to submit to me and to bring me preciosities and things to help build my city and the temple and so forth. So he asks Inanna to do that, and she says, yes, you can. So he sends a messenger to deliver the message. Hey, you have to submit to me and bring me a bunch of cool stuff. The Lord of Arata has some emotional responses to it, but ultimately says, no way, I challenge you as a rival, answer my challenges. And so there are three of them. And it's essentially, if you can solve my challenge, you know, if you can best me in these challenges, then we'll submit. So the first challenge is the Lord of Arata says, hey, load barley into nets, you know, the things with holes in them, put them on donkeys and have the barley make it all the way to Arata, which is a very far distance away in the story, over seven mountains. Well, the solution, the way that Enmerkar solves this problem is he he soaks the barley and he narrows the holes of the gaps in the nets. And the expanded barley and the narrowed nets makes it so that it stays in the nets and makes it all the way to Arata. And the pile of barley, the text says, that is created when they put it up and put it in a pile in Arata saves the starving people in Arata because they didn't have enough rain, they weren't growing enough food. And so the solution actually saves the starving people that are there in Arata. Well, that didn't do it for the Lord of Arata. He says, all right, challenge number two, create a scepter that is not made of wood, gold, silver, copper, and a whole bunch of other materials. Basically, make a scepter from a material that doesn't exist, which seems like a really weird thing to ask. Well, Enmerkar, being the genius that he is, and he, he gets help from Enki on this, of course. He grinds a substance. There's a broken section there, so we don't know exactly what it is. But he grinds a substance into a liquid form, and through some careful maneuvering, it takes five or ten years for this thing to ultimately take shape. But he creates this new scepter from an essentially new material that he's made from grinding up other materials uh, into a liquid form and letting it harden. So he sends that scepter on via his messenger. And of course, the Lord of Arata says, nah, that doesn't really do it for me. Here's another challenge. I want you to provide a champion to fight one of my champions. But that champion can't be black, white, brown, red, yellow, multicolored, can't be anything. And so how do we find a, you know, a human that fits those characteristics? Well, uh, Enmerkar's solution was to clothe him in a uh, turban and put lion skin on him. And so essentially... It's not any of these other colors because it's not his skin. But at this point, even though he answers the challenge, he gets pretty mad. And Merkar gets pretty mad. And he tells his messenger, he kind of goes on a rant. Tell him this. And you know what? Tell him this. And tell him this other thing. 
Well, up to this point, the text is very explicit, goes into some detail to talk about how the messenger memorizes the entirety of the message from one king to the other and repeats it to the to the original king and then back to the king to whom he's delivering the message. But at this point, the text says that the message was too long, too complex, he couldn't repeat it. And so Enmerkar takes a tablet, takes some clay, pats it into the shape of a tablet, and writes the message on it in cuneiform and invents writing by doing so. So the messenger takes that tablet, he gets all the way to Arata, hands the tablet to the king, and he hands the tablet to the king and says, here, here it is, read it. And so writing is invented. And there's, of course, debate about could he read the tablet, could he not read the tablet, the the Sumerian's a little complex there. Now, the end of the story, following the tablet being delivered to the Lord of Arata, Ishkor, the storm god, sends rain in Arata and waters the fields and they grow again. And this emboldens, apparently, the Lord of Arata to say, ha, Inanna hasn't forsaken us. Our champions are going to fight now. So in a broken section, it looks like the champions compete. Now, the end of the story is fragmentary, but Enmerkar is made supreme by Inanna, that much we can see, and Arata becomes this well-established and abundant place. But this is how the tablet ends. Enmerkar is made supreme by Inanna, just as she said he would be. But Arata is not decimated or something. It's well-established and abundant place. City, majestic bull bearing vigour and great awesome splendour. Kalaba, breast of the storm, where destiny is determined. Uruk, great mountain in the midst of. There the evening meal of the great abode of An was set. In those days of yore, when the destinies were determined, the great princes allowed Uruk Kalaba's Ayana to lift its head high. Plenty and carp floods and the rain which brings forth dappled barley were then increased in Uruk Kalaba. Before the land of Dilmun yet existed, the Ayana of Aruk Kolaba was well-founded, and the holy Gipar of Inanna in brick-built Kolaba shone forth like the silver in the load. Before, carried, before, before, carried. Before the commerce was practised, before gold, silver, copper, tin, blocks of lapis lazuli and mountain stones were brought down together from their mountains, before, bathed for the festival, time passed was colourfully adorned, and the holy place was, with flawless lapis lazuli, its interior beautifully formed like a white mace tree bearing fruit. The Lord of Arata placed on his head the golden crown for Inanna, but he did not please her like the Lord of Kolaba. Arata did not build for holy Inanna, unlike the shrine Ayana, the Gipar, the holy place, unlike brick-built Kolaba. At that time, the Lord chosen by Inanna in her heart Chosen by Inanna in her holy heart from the bright mountain, Enmerkar, the son of Utu, made a plea to his sister, the lady who grants desires, holy Inanna. My sister, let Arata fashion gold and silver skillfully on my behalf for Uruk. Let them cut the flawless lapis lazuli from the blocks. Let them, the translucence of the flawless lapis lazuli, build a holy mountain in Uruk. Let Arata build a temple brought down from heaven, your place of worship, the shrine Ayana. Let Arata skillfully fashion the interior of the holy Gipar, your abode. May I, the radiant youth, may I be embraced there by you. Let Arata submit beneath the yoke for Uruk on my behalf. Let the people of Arata bring down for me the mountain stones from their mountain. Build the great shrine for me. Erect the great abode for me. Make the great abode, the abode of the gods, famous for me. Make my May prosper in Kalaba. 
Make the Abzu grow for me like a holy mountain. Make Eridu gleam for me like the mountain range. Cause the Abzu shrine to shine forth for me like the silver in the load. When, in the Abzu, I utter praise, when I bring the May down from Eridu, when, in lordship, I am adorned with the crown like a purified shrine, when I place on my head the holy crown in Uruk Kolaba, then may the of the great shrine bring me into the Gipa, and may the of the Gipa bring me into the great shrine. May the people marvel admiringly, and may Utu witness it in joy. Thereupon the splendour of holy Arn, the lady of the mountains, the wise, the goddess whose coal is for Amun Ushungal Anna, Inanna, the lady of all the lands, called to Enmerkar, the son of Utu. Come, Enmerkar, I shall offer you advice. Let my counsel be heeded. I shall speak words to you. Let them be heard. Choose from the troops as a messenger one who is eloquent of speech and endowed with endurance. When and to whom shall he carry the important message of wise Inanna? Let him bring it up into the Zubi Mountains. Let him descend with it from the Zubi Mountains. Let Susa and the land of Anshan humbly salute Inanna like tiny mice. In the great mountain rages, let the teeming multitudes grovel in the dust for her. Arata shall submit beneath the yoke of Uruk. The people of Arata shall bring down the mountain stones from their mountains, and shall build the great shrine for you, and erect the great abode for you, will cause the great abode, the abode of the gods, to shine forth for you, will make your maize flourish in Kulaba will make the Abzu grow for you like a holy mountain, will make Eridu shine forth for you like the glitter in the load. When in the Abzu you utter praise, when you bring the May from Eridu, when, in lordship, you are adorned with the crown like the purified shrine, when you place on your head the holy crown in Uruk Kolaba, then may the of the great shrine bring you into the Gipa, and may the of the Gipa bring you into the great shrine. May the people marvel admiringly, and may Utu witness it in joy. Because shall carry daily when, in the evening cool, in the place of Demuzi where the ewes, kids, and lambs are numerous, the people of Arata shall run around for you like the mountain sheep in the Askalang fields, the fields of Demuzi. Rise like the sun over my holy breast. You are the jewel of my, f- you are the jewel of my throat. Praise be to you, Enmekar, the son of Utu. The Lord gave heed to the words of holy Inanna, and chose from the troops as a messenger one who was eloquent of speech and endowed with endurance. Where and to whom will he carry the important message of wise Inanna? You shall bring it up into the Zubi Mountains. You shall descend with it from the Zubi Mountains. Let Susa and the land of Anshan humbly salute Inanna like tiny mice. In the great mountain ranges... Let the teeming multitudes grovel in the dust for her. Messenger, speak to the Lord of Arata and say to him, Lest I make the people fly off from that city like a wild dove from its tree, lest I make them fly around like a bird over its well-founded nest, lest I requite them as if at a current market rate, lest I make it gather dust like an utterly destroyed city, lest, like a settlement cursed by Enki and utterly destroyed, I too utterly destroy Arata. Lest, like the devastation which swept destructively, and in whose wake Inanna arose, shrieked and yelled aloud, I too wreak a sweeping devastation there. Let Arata pack nuggets of gold in leather sacks, placing alongside it the Kug Mea ore. Package up precious metals and load the packs on the donkeys of the mountains.' 
And then may the junior Enlil of Sumer have them build for me, the lord whom Nudimud has chosen in his sacred heart, a mountain of shining may. Have them make it luxuriant for me like a boxwood tree. Have them make its shining horns colourful for me as when Utu comes forth from his chamber. Have them make its doorposts gleam brightly for me. Chant to him the holy song, the incantation sung in its chambers, the incantation of Nudimud. On that day when there is no snake, when there is no scorpion, when there is no hyena, when there is no lion, when there is neither dog nor wolf, when there is thus neither fear nor trembling, man has no rival. At that time, may the lands of Shubor and Hamazi, the many-tongued, and Sumer, the great mountain of the May of Magnificence, and Akkad, the land possessing all that is befitting, and the Matu land, resting in security, the whole universe, the well-guarded people, may they all address Enlil together in a single language. For at that time, for the ambitious lords, for the ambitious princes, for the ambitious kings, Enki, for the ambitious lords, for the ambitious princes, for the ambitious kings, for the ambitious lords, for the ambitious princes, for the ambitious kings, Enki, the lord of abundance and of steadfast decisions, wise and knowing lord of the land, the expert of the gods, chosen for wisdom, the lord Enki shall change the speech in their mouths, as many as he had placed there, and so the speech of mankind is truly one. The Lord added further instructions for the messenger going to the mountains, to Arata. Messenger, by night drive on like the south wind, by day be up like the dew. The messenger gave heed to the words of his king. He journeyed by the starry night, and by day he travelled with Utu of heaven. Where and to whom will he carry the important message of Inanna, with its stinging tone? He brought it up into the Zubi Mountains, he descended with it from the Zubi Mountains. Susa and the land of Anshan humbly saluted Inanna like tiny mice. In the great mountain ranges, the teeming multitudes groveled in the dust for her. He traversed five mountains, six mountains, seven mountains. He lifted his eyes as he approached Arata. He stepped joyfully into the courtyard of Arata. He made known the authority of his king. Openly he spoke out the words in his heart. The messenger transmitted the message to the lord of Arata. Your father, my master, has sent me to you. The lord of Uruk, the lord of Kalaba, has sent me to you. What is it to me what your master has spoken? What is it to me what he has said? This is what my master has spoken. This is what he has said. My king, who from his birth has been fitted for the crown, the lord of Uruk, the Sankal snake living in Sumer, who pulverizes mountains like flour, the stag of the tall mountains, endowed with princely antlers, wild cow, kid pawing the holy soapwort with its hoof, whom the good cow had given birth to in the heart of the mountains, Enmerkar, the son of Utu, has sent me to you. The Lord of Arata speaks. What is it to me what your master has spoken? What is it to me what he has said? This is what my master said. Lest I make the people fly off from that city like a wild dove from its tree, lest I make them fly around like a bird over its well-founded nest, lest I requite them as if at a current market rate, lest I make it gather dust like an utterly destroyed city, lest like a settlement cursed by Enki and utterly destroyed, I too utterly destroy Arata, lest like the devastation which swept destructively, and in whose wake Inanna arose, shrieked and yelled aloud, I too wreak a sweeping devastation there. 
Let Arata pack nuggets of gold in leather sacks, placing alongside it the Kumea ore, package up precious metals, unload the packs on the donkeys of the mountains, and then may the junior Enlil of Suma have them build for me, the lord whom Nudimud has chosen in his sacred heart, a mountain of shining may. A mountain of a shining may. Have them make it luxuriant for me like a boxwood tree. Have them make its shining horns colourful for me, as when Utu comes forth from his chamber. Have them make its doorposts gleam brightly for me. Chant to him for me the holy song, the incantation sung in its chambers, the incantation of Nudimud. Say whatever you will say to me, and I shall announce that message in the Shrine Ayana, as glad tidings to the scion of him with the glistening beard whom his stalwart cow gave birth to in the mountain of the Shining May, who was reared on the soil of Arata, who was given suck at the udder of the good cow, who is suited for office in Kolaba, the mountain of Great May, to Enmerkar, the son of Utu. I shall repeat it in his gipa, fruitful as a flourishing tree, to my king, the lord of Kolaba. When he had spoken thus to him, Messenger, speak to your king, the lord of Kolaba, and say to him, it is I, the Lord suited to purification, I whom the huge heavenly neckstock, the queen of heaven and earth, the goddess of the numerous May, holy Inanna, has brought to Arata, the mountain of the shining May, I whom she has let bar the entrance of the mountains as if with a great door. How then shall Arata submit to Uruk? Arata's submission to Uruk is out of the question. Say this to him. When he had spoken thus to him, the messenger replied to the Lord of Arata, the great queen of heaven, who rides upon the awesome May, dwelling on the peaks of the bright mountains, adorning the dais of the bright mountains, my lord and master, who is her servant, has had them install her as the divine queen of Ayana. Arata shall bow, O lord, in absolute submission. She has spoken to him thus, in brick-built Kolaba. Thereupon the lord became depressed and deeply troubled. He had no answer. He was searching for an answer. He stared at his own feet, trying to find an answer. He found an answer and gave a cry. He bellowed the answer to the message like a bull to the messenger. Messenger, speak to your king, the lord of Kolaba, and say to him, This great mountain range is a mace tree grown high to the sky. Its roots form a net, and its branches are a snare. It may be a sparrow, but it has the talons of an anzu bird or of an eagle. The barrier of Inanna is perfectly made and is impenetrable. Those eagle talons make the blood of the enemy run from the bright mountain. Although in Arata there is weeping, water libations are offered and flour is sprinkled. On the mountain, sacrifices and prayers are offered in obeisance. With fewer than five or ten men, how can mobilised Uruk proceed against the Zubi mountains? Your king is heading in all haste against my military might, but I am equally eager for a contest. He who ignores a rival does not get to eat everything up, like the bull which ignores the bull at its side. But he who acknowledges a contest can be the outright winner, like the bull which acknowledges the bull at its side. Or does he reject me in this contest? Like, can match no one. Or does he still reject me in this contest? Again, I have words to say to you, messenger. I have an artful proposal to make to you. May it get across to you. Repeat this to your master, to the lord of Kolaba. A lion lying on its paws in Ayana, 
a bull bellowing within it, within his gipar, fruitful as a flourishing mace tree. The mountain range is a warrior, high, like Utu going to his abode at twilight, like one from whose face blood drips, or like Nana, who is majestic in the high heavens, like him whose countenance shines with radiance, who is like the woods in the mountains. Now, if Enmekar just makes straight for the Avarata, for the benevolent protective spirit of the mountain of holy powers, for Arata, which is like a bright crown of heaven, then I shall make my preeminence clear, and he need not pour barley into sacks, nor have it carted, nor have that barley carried into the settlements, nor palace collectors over the labourers. But if he were actually to have barley poured into carrying nets, and to have it loaded on the pack-asses at whose sides reserved donkeys have been placed, and were to have it heaped up in a pile in the courtyard of Arata, were he really to heap it up in such a manner, and were Anana, the luxuriance of the grain-pile, who is the illuminator of the lands, the ornament of the settlements, who adorns the seven walls, who is the heroic lady fit for battle, who, as the heroine of the battleground, makes the troops dance a dance of Anana, were she actually to cast off Arata as if to a carrion-pursuing dog, then, in that case, I should submit to him. He would indeed have made me know his preeminence. Like the city, I, in my smallness, would submit to him. So say to him. After he had spoken thus to him, the lord of Arata made the messenger repeat the message just as he himself had said it. The messenger turned on his thigh like a wild cow. Like a sand fly, he went on his way to the morning calm. He went on his way in the morning calm. He set foot joyfully in brick-built Kolaba. The messenger rushed to the great courtyard, the courtyard of the throne room. He repeated it word-perfect to his master, the lord of Kolaba. He even bellowed at him like a bull, and Enmekar listened to him like an ox-driver. The king had him sit at his right side. As he turned his left side to him, he said, Does Arata really understand the implications of his own stratagem? After day had broken and Utu had risen, the sun god of the land lifted his head high. The king combined the Tigris with the Euphrates. He combined the Tigris with the Euphrates. Large vessels were placed in the open air, and he stood small vessels beside them, like lambs lying on the grass. Vessels were placed in the open air adjacent to them. Then the king, Enmekar, the son of Utu, placed wide apart the Eshta vessels, which were of gold. Thereupon the tablet, the pointed stylus of the assembly, the golden statue fashioned on a propitious day, beautiful Nanibgal, grown with a fair luxuriance, Nisiba, the lady of broad wisdom, opened for him her holy house of wisdom. He entered the palace of heaven and became attentive. Then the Lord opened his mighty storehouse and firmly set his great Lidgar measure on the ground. The king removed his old barley from the other barley. He soaked the green malt all through with water, its lip, the herein plant. He narrowed the meshes of the carrying nets. He measured out in full the barley for the granary, adding for the teeth of locusts. He had it loaded on the pack asses at whose sides reserved donkeys were placed. The king, the lord of broad wisdom, the lord of Uruk, the lord of Kolaba, dispatched them directly to Arata. He made the people go to Arata on their own, like ants out of crevices. Again, the lord added instructions for the messenger going to the mountains, to Arata. 
Messenger, speak to the Lord of Arata and say to him, The base of my scepter is the divine power of magnificence. Its crown provides a protective shade over Kalaba. Under its spreading branches, Holy Anana refreshes herself in the Shrine Ayana. Let him snap off a splinter from it and hold that in his hand. Let him hold it in his hand like a string of carnelian beads, a string of lapis lazuli beads. Let the Lord Varata bring that before me. So say to him. After he had thus spoken to him, the messenger went on his way to Arata. His feet raised the dust of the road and made the little pebbles of the hills thud. Like a dragon prowling the desert, he was unopposed. After the messenger reached Arata, the people of Arata stepped forward to admire the pack asses. In the courtyard of Arata, the messenger measured out in full the barley for the granary, adding for the teeth of locusts. As if from the rains of heaven and the sunshine, Arata was filled with abundance. As, when the gods returned to their seats, Arata's hunger was sated. The people of Arata covered their fields with the water-soaked green malt. Afterwards, couriers and Shatam officials. The citizens of Arata were mindful. He revealed the matter to Arata. Attentively, in Arata, from the hand, his hand, to the Lord of Uruk. As for us, in the direst hunger, in our direst famine, let us prostrate ourselves before the Lord of Kulaba. The eloquent elders wrung their hands in despair, leaning against the wall. Indeed, they were even placing their treasures at the disposal of the Lord. His scepter in the palace. Openly he spoke out the words in his heart. Your father, my master, sent me to you. Enmekar, the son of Utu, sent me to you. What is it to me what your master has spoken? What is it to me what he has said? This is what my master has spoken. This is what he has said. The base of my scepter is the divine power of magnificence. Its crown provides a protective shade over Kolaba. Under its spreading branches, Holy Anana refreshes herself in the Shrine Ayana. Let him snap off a splinter from it and hold that in his hand. Let him hold it in his hand like a string of carnelian beads, a string of lapis lazuli beads. Let the Lord of Arata bring that before me. So say to him. After he had spoken thus to him, for that reason he went inside the sanctuary and lay himself down in a fast. Day broke. He discussed the matter at length. He spoke unspeakable words. He circulated with this matter as if it were barley eaten by a donkey. And what did one speak to another? What did one say to another? What one said to another, so indeed it was. Messenger, speak to your king, the lord of Kulaba, and say to him, Let him put in his hand and contemplate a scepter that is not of wood, nor designated as wood, not Ildag wood, nor Shimgig wood, not cedar wood, nor cypress wood, not Hashwa cypress, nor palm wood, not hardwood, nor zabalum wood, not poplar as in a chariot, not reed work as in whip handles, not gold, nor copper, not genuine cumea metal, nor silver, not carnelian, nor lapis lazuli. Let him snap off a splinter from that and hold it in his hand. Let him hold it in his hand like a string of carnelian beads, a string of lapis lazuli beads. Let the Lord of Kalaba bring that before me. So say to him. 
After he had spoken to him thus, the messenger went off like a young donkey, braying as it is cut off from the chariot tongue. He trotted like an onager running on dry land. He filled his mouth with wind. He ran in one track like a long-walled sheep butting other sheep in its fury. He set foot joyfully in brick-built Kolaba. He transmitted the message word for word to his master, the Lord of Kolaba. Now Enki gave Enmerkar wisdom, and the Lord gave instructions to his chief steward. In his house, the king received. He wrapped it up like, and inspected it. He pounded with a pestle like herbs, and poured it like oil on the reed. From the sunlight it emerged into the shade, and from the shade it emerged into the sunlight. After five years, ten years had passed, he split the reed with an axe. The Lord looked at it, pleased, and poured on fine oil, fine oil of the bright mountains. The Lord placed the scepter in the hands of the messenger going to the mountains. The messenger, whose journeying to Arata was like a pelican over the hills, like a fly over the ground, who darted through the mountains as swiftly as carp swim, reached Arata. He set foot joyfully in the courtyard of Arata, and put the scepter in, he and it. The Lord of Arata, eyeing the scepter, which was, in the sanctuary, his holy dwelling, he, the Lord, called to his Shatam official. Arata is indeed like a slaughtered sheep. Its roads are indeed like those of the rebel lands. Since Holy Anana has given the primacy of Arata to the Lord of Kolaba, now it seems that Holy Anana is looking with favour on her man who sent a messenger to make the severe message as clear as the light of Utu. So in Arata, where can one go in this crisis? How long before the yoke rope becomes bearable? As for us, in the direst hunger, in our direst famine, are we to prostrate ourselves before the Lord of Kalaba? The Lord of Arata entrusted a message to the messenger as if it were an important tablet. Messenger, speak to your master, the Lord of Kalaba, and say to him, A champion who is not black-coloured, a champion who is not white-coloured, a champion who is not brown-coloured, a champion who is not red-coloured, a champion who is not yellow-coloured, a champion who is not multicoloured. Let him give you such a champion. My champion will compete against his champion, and let the more able one prevail. Say this to him. After he had spoken to him thus, the messenger set off Ulum Alam. In brick-built Kolaba he was speechless, like a... He gazed like a goat on the mountain slopes, he, as if it were a huge mere snake coming out of a field. In, he lifted his head, of Arata. From his seat he addressed him like a raging torrent. Messenger, speak to the Lord of Arata and say to him, A garment that is not black-coloured, a garment that is not white-coloured, a garment that is not brown-coloured, a garment that is not red-coloured, a garment that is not yellow-coloured, a garment that is not multicoloured. I shall give him such a garment. My champion is embraced by Enlil. I shall send him such a champion. My champion will compete against his champion, and let the more able one prevail. Say this to him. Second, speak to him and say, Let him immediately pass from subterfuge. In his city, let them go before him like sheep. Let him, like their shepherd, follow behind them. 
As he goes, let the mountain of bright lapis lazuli humble itself before him like a crushed reed, and let them heap up its shining gold and silver in the courtyard of Arata, for Anana, the lady of Ayana. Third, speak to him and say, Lest I make the people fly off from that city like a wild dove from its tree, lest I smash them like, lest I requite them as if at a current market rate, lest I make them walk in, when he goes, let them take the mountain stones and rebuild for me the great shrine Eridu, the Abzu, the Anun. Let them adorn its architrave for me. Let them make its protection spread over the land for me. His speaking, recite his omen to him. At that time, the Lord, on the throne dioceses and on the chairs, the noble seed. His speech was substantial and its contents extensive. The messenger, whose mouth was heavy, was not able to repeat it. Because the messenger, whose mouth was tired, was not able to repeat it, the Lord of Colaba patted some clay and wrote the message as if on a tablet. Formerly, the writing of messages on clay was not established. Now, under that sun and on that day, it was indeed so. The Lord of Colaba inscribed the message like a tablet. It was just like that. The messenger was like a bird, flapping its wings. He raged forth like a wolf following a kid. He traversed five mountains, six mountains, seven mountains. He lifted his eyes as he approached Arata. He stepped joyfully into the courtyard of Arata and made known the authority of his king. Openly, he spoke out the words in his heart. The messenger transmitted the message to the lord of Arata. Your father, my master, has sent me to you. The Lord of Uruk, the Lord of Calaba, has sent me to you. What is it to me what your master has spoken? What is it to me what he has said? This is what my master has spoken. This is what he has said. My king is like a huge mace tree, son of Enlil. This tree has grown high, uniting heaven and earth. Its crown reaches the sky. Its trunk is set upon the earth. He who is made to shine forth in lordship and kingship, Enmekar, the son of Utu, has given me a clay tablet. O Lord of Arata, after you have examined the clay tablet, after you have learned the content of the message, say whatever you will say to me, and I shall announce that message in the shrine Ayana as glad tidings to the scion of him with the glistening beard, whom his stalwart cow gave birth to in the mountains of the shining May, who was reared on the soil of Arata who was given suck at the udder of the good cow, who was suited for office in Kolaba, the mountain of the great May, to Enmerkar, the son of Utu. I shall repeat it in his gipar, fruitful as a flourishing mace tree, to my king, the lord of Kolaba. After he had spoken thus to him, the lord of Arata received his kiln-fired tablet from the messenger. The lord of Arata looked at the tablet. The transmitted message was just nails, and his brow expressed anger. The Lord of Arata looked at his kiln-fired tablet. At that moment, the Lord worthy of the crown of lordship, the son of Enlil, the god Ishkul, thundering in heaven and earth, caused a raging storm, a great lion in. He was making the mountains quake. He was convulsing the mountain range, the awesome radiance of his breast. He caused the mountain range to raise its voice in joy. On Arata's parched flanks, in the midst of the mountains, wheat grew of its own accord and chickpeas also grew of their own accord. They brought the wheat which grew of its own accord into the granary, for the lord of Arata, and heaped it up before him in the courtyard of Arata. 
The Lord of Arata looked at the wheat, the messenger's eyes looked askance. The Lord of Arata called to the messenger. Inanna, the lady of all the lands, has not run away from the primacy of her city, Arata, nor has she stolen it for Uruk. She has not run away from her Ezagina, nor has she stolen it for the shrine Ayana. She has not run away from the mountain of the Shining May, nor has she stolen it for brick-built Kolaba. She has not run away from the adorned bed, nor has she stolen it for her shining bed. She has not run away from the purification for the Lord, nor has she stolen it for the Lord of Uruk, the Lord of Kolaba. Inanna, the lady of all the lands, has surrounded Arata, on its right and left, for her like a rising flood. They are people whom she has separated from other people. They are people whom Demuzi has made step forth from other people, who firmly establish the holy words of Inanna. Let the clever champion and the... of Demuzi whirl about. Quickly, come now. After the flood swept over, Inanna, the lady of all the lands, from her great love of Demuzi, has sprinkled the water of life upon those who had stood in the face of the flood and made the land subject to them. The clever champion, when he came, had covered his head with a colourful turban and wrapped himself in a garment of lion skins. Inanna. Her song was pleasing to her spouse, Alma Ushmgalana. Since that time, she has made it perfect in the holy ear, the holy ear of Demuzi, has sung it and has let the words be known. When the old woman came to the mountain of the Shining May, she went up to him like a maiden who in her day is perfect, painted her eyes with coal, wrapped herself in a white garment, came forth with the good crown like the moonlight. She arranged the... on her head. She made Enmerkar, her spouse, occupy the throne dais with her. She raised up, and indeed, for Arata, the ewes and their lambs now multiply. Indeed, for Arata, the mother goats and their kids multiply. Indeed, for Arata, the cows and their calves multiply. Indeed, for Arata, the donkey mares and their black, swift-footed foals multiply. In Arata, they say together, Let them heap up and pile up for the grain piles. The abundance is truly your abundance. After having made, for the Lord of Arata, let him, he will. He came forth, he set right for her. Befitting the Elu song of your heart, your abundance in his, Enlil has granted you, and may be made known. His father was not luxuriantly fertile, and poured forth no semen. Enlil, king of all the lands, in accordance with the tasks which he has now established, the people of Arata, their task of plying gold, silver, and lapis lazuli, the men who, golden fruit, fruit trees, with their figs and grapes, shall heap up the fruit in great mounds, and shall dig out the flawless lapis lazuli from the roots of the trees, and shall remove the succulent part of the reeds from the crowns of the trees, and then shall heap them up in a pile in the courtyard of Ayana for Inanna, the lady of Ayana. Come, my king, I shall offer you advice. Let my counsel be heeded. I shall speak words to you. Let them be heard. Let the people choose a man of the foreign lands, and let the people of Arata speak. When I go from here, the ever-sparkling lady gives me my kingship. Geshtinana, in that city, festivals were not daily.
I have with me today Dr. Jennifer Ross, who is a professor at Hood College. Dr. Ross is here to talk to us about the invention of writing, specifically cuneiform writing in Mesopotamia. Um, and I'm going to ask her if she wouldn't mind introducing herself, giving some background to who she is, what research she does, and then we'll get started. Good. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be on the on the show. Um, it's exciting what, what you do, and I, I'm really happy to be part of it. Thank you. Um, so I teach, uh, I teach at Hood College, which is in Frederick, Maryland. It's a small liberal arts college. And when I was hired, I was hired as the first archaeologist to work at the college, which, and I was hired straight out of my PhD. So I finished my PhD at Berkeley in 1999 and started to teach at Hood in 1999. Um, and I basically am the ancient person at the, <laughs> the college. So that's my area of expertise. I do everything. Um, but uh, my own research, uh, at least in the last 10 years or so, has been looking at, uh, well, my overall research is that I am interested in technology change um, and studying technology change as an archaeologist. Um, but one of the things that I started to think about as I looked at Mesopotamian studies and especially about uh, the Uruk period, the earliest, the period of the earliest cities was to think about writing as a technology and think about the invention of writing as one more component as of technological change that comes at the same time. I started to get very distracted by that idea. And, <laughs> uh, and I've basically seem like I feel, I feel like I haven't moved much forward, but I've been doing a lot of work around that. Um, and my PhD combined both archaeology and philology, Assyriology. And so I'm coming at the question of the invention of writing um, from a couple of different directions. Fantastic. And actually, I, I was doing a bit of reading uh, this morning and yesterday. Um, and like writing has never, it should have done, it's never really occurred to me before as a technological advancement, but it really is. Yeah. Um, it's like on par with probably more important than computers and, and like telephones and that kind of thing. So that's fascinating. Thank you. Um, and what was your your PhD? Was a seriological? Mm -hmm. It was. It was. Uh, it was a, a gigantic PhD about gold and silver in the third millennium BC. That is gigantic. It was. It was. And uh, and I have never published it because it was too gigantic. But it it allowed me to do both uh, both things that I love, both the archaeology and the texts. Mm -hmm. And so, and looking at changes in gold and silver distribution and production over time. That's fantastic. So do, uh, what time periods did you go for? Like all of them? All of them. All yes. of them. Wow. Way too big. <laughs> 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 um, but I, but I have found that I've kind of, I've gone backwards and gone back to the Uruk period, especially as the, the area that I think I'm most interested in or the period I'm most interested in. Um, and there too is where we start to see gold and silver start to emerge, um, both textually, it, it appears in some of the earliest texts, mm -hmm. but then also archaeologically. So, um, so I, I keep coming back to that same time period. Would you mind like, giving a, like, a brief overview of what the Uruk period is and, and why you personally find it so fascinating? Because I love it as well. Um, sure. <laughs> I'm completely with you on that regard. Sure. So the Uruk period, uh, which is at the sort of the end of the fourth millennium BCE, and especially the the final portion of it from about 3500 to 3100 or 3000 BCE, is the time period of the first cities. 
um, and they're centered and they were first and it was first discovered in at the site of Uruk. And so like good archaeologists, the Germans named the period after the first site where it was excavated. Um, and uh, so but but that city then, of course, becomes this important city um, in the memory of the Mesopotamians as the home to Gilgamesh. And um, and, and so it. Uh, it is an important place for all periods of Mesopotamian history. The Uruk period then is is the first point at which we see not just a city, but then a bunch of things that go with a city. So um, so monumental uh, architecture and um, uh, temples. Um, uh, the uh, so some evidence certainly for labor. Uh, control and labor uh, employment of large numbers of people and things like that. And then writing also seems to go along with that. With the development of administration, we get the development of writing. Mm-hmm. Am I right also in thinking that you've done a bit of work on Iran and writing in in Iran? So my so so one of the things that the uh, I having not a not a huge. Um, Let's see, how do I want to say this? There's not, because I am a a full professor at my college now, there's not a huge push for me to be out there and doing a lot of new topics every year and Mm -hmm. publishing gigantic things every year. Um, I'm able to, to follow the trail of this, of this detective story in the direction that I want to. And so one of the directions that, um, the study of the beginning of writing has led me to is to, um, is to look for well as an archaeologist what i'm interested in is what leads to writing mm. and so i look for things like sequence and stratigraphy and things like that um and uruk is inconvenient the site itself of uruk is inconvenient because the first writing we have just in piles of trash um it's used as building fill and so we don't find sequences in the development of this particular technology where we do find it is at a couple of sites in iran and oh. so that's why my my research has kind of led to Iran because mm-hmm. some of the earlier phases seem to seem to actually be attested there. Um, and it seems like there's there's a growing I wouldn't say it's a consensus, but there's a growing argument among scholars that we should be looking to Iran mm-hmm. for some of those origins. That's very interesting. So for people who don't have an archaeological background, could you maybe just give a a bit more elaboration on why it's problematic having material culture in trash dumps and why that's an issue for for chronology of objects and and technology sure so the the ideal for an archaeologist is often what we we talk about as the pompeii situation where a a city or a, a society is completely destroyed and everything that they used and made is left in place um, for archaeologists to discover it, of course, we think it's, of course, centralize, central our, uh, centralize our thoughts on what's good for the archaeologist. So that's the ideal. Um, and my, my students actually also have come to, to, uh, to, to realize how, what a terrible scenario that is, but that that is. Because generally that means that someone's house has been burned to the ground. Yes. yes. Um, the, the much more typical situation is that what archaeologists discover is what's lost and what's left behind and what is thrown in the trash and things like that. Um, and that still ends up being stratified in such a way that we can follow a sequence. We can go from level to level and see how things change over time. Uruk and sites like it are doubly problematic for us then that, that in that it's not just that the 
that the tablets, the initial tablets were thrown in a trash heap, but then that somebody went, collected everything from that trash heap from different periods and threw it all into a pit and built a building on top of it. So we don't have any sense other than the writing style itself of even that earliest sequence. So what you're looking at is kind of equivalent to having um, like pottery from the 60s, 70s, 80s through to modern day, all collected in one big pit. And Absolutely. you're like, unless you kind of have examples from other sites of um, like the chronology of how that pottery changes and develops, it's quite hard to sort out what came, what style came first. Exactly, um, exactly. And at Uruk, there's also the problem in that that also means that we don't even know exactly where the texts were written. Um, because they've been moved out of wherever they were written and probably moved a couple of times. So you can't even get a sense of uh, this text was found in a mortuary context. So it must have been used in a mortuary context, which makes this important for burial rituals and how mm -hmm. people have thought about death, because it's just found in a big pit with a bunch of different stuff. Exactly. Excellent. Exactly. Thank you. Dr. Ross, could you maybe talk a little bit about uh, the development of cuneiform writing and um, what it was initially created to record? One of the things that we think about with early writing, and especially with early cuneiform writing, is that it's not precisely speech. So that that earliest writing is recording something that they're trying to remember, or that they need to remember, without it being exactly what they said. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we get writing, we're not sure exactly what the thought patterns were or the cognitive patterns were. It's um, maybe like reading a typist's shorthand and sure, trying to or, reconstruct speech from that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or emptying your wallet at the end of the day <laughs> and saying, okay, this is it. This is what we have. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and, and we know that that's shorthand and it's receipts and, and those are the kinds of texts that we have. Um, it is absolutely true that there are stages to writing. Um, we don't get literary texts, which probably at least were a little closer to language until significantly later. So writing goes in stages. It doesn't, it, it goes in stages that seem to fulfill political and economic and intellectual needs. Um, but it's hard to exactly trace how well it aligns with those at any given time period. And I imagine it's also quite difficult to look at um, a genre of texts and say, oh, these medical texts don't appear until the first millennium BCE. Mm -hmm. Therefore, medical like practice, medical knowledge did not exist before then. It just means that this is the beginning of when it was written down. In right. all likelihood, it, it existed and was used much, much earlier than that. Yeah, yes. Um, and there's there's actually one of the areas of my research that kind of goes a little bit along with that is that um, w one of the earliest kinds of texts that we have from the very beginning of the writing of, of proto-cuneiform, which we're not exactly sure it was to write Sumerian, the first written language, but we think, um, but about 85% of those texts are, um, are economic. So they say two sheep, five goats. Um, the other 15 are lists of words, and um, they're the lists of words that for, for cuneiform scholars, for seriologists, they're important because they're the lexical lists. They become the word lists that go into scribal training. But one of the things I've been most interested in is how can you have scribal training before you have scribes? Yeah. Or at the first yeah. generation that you have scribes, 
who's training them and how do they come up with this particular way to do that? Mm -hmm. And at the very moment that they start to write, they start to write these lists. Interestingly, the lists are not always the words that they used in the, in the economic texts. So yeah. there's something going on there that's not quite as easy as it seems in, in order to, to tease all, all of that out. That's very interesting, especially because you do find lexical lists much later in like scribal settings in Absolutely. Like, school, well, what we call schoolhouses. But you're right. What are they doing that early? Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Lovely. Thank you. And one final question before I, I ask you to go a little bit into uh, the development of, of writing and, and how you think it worked. Is it possible to reconstruct the spoken language from written documents found in Mesopotamia? Not from the earlier tablets. Um, and But we we do already in maybe the second phase of what we call proto-cuneiform already begin to get signs that are clearly um, phonetic. So we definitely have keys to and clues to the pronunciation, um, but there, the the actual spoken language presumably had verbs, and so many of our earliest texts don't have any verbs in them. Just so, lists of nouns. Yeah, exactly. So 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 even the sense of of um, process and things like that that you expect out of a full sentence aren't necessarily represented in some of the earliest tablets. Lovely, thank you. I was wondering if you'd be willing to go into like the practical development of of the written language. Sure, sure. So this is and and so once again, as an archaeologist, I'm really interested in in writing as a material practice. Uh, the you know the way in which um, somebody learned how to manipulate clay and put a stylus in their hand and who did that in the first place. Um, and one of the things that I think is most interesting or that that is most revealing when we start to look at where writing comes from in the pro process by which it developed is that it is so clay-centered. The Mesopotamians themselves were really clay-centered. It was what they had. Um, and I think that it must come out of the manipulation, out of, out of earlier stages in the manipulation of clay and sort of understanding the properties of clay and how it worked and how it dried and things like that. Um, the tokens then are the are the first evidence that we have for some of the, that kind of manipulation, and so these small objects that we find as early as the Neolithic, um, the tokens are pyramids, balls, rods, um, those kinds of objects, and we find them as early as the Neolithic. They're made out of clay, um, and they're found all across the Middle East. So this is they're doing something with these objects that seems to um, seems to be widespread. Um, and then the first point at which we start to get a clue as to what that is that they're doing with them is when we find them packed into these clay balls that, that are called bullae or, um, or clay balls. Um, and we find inside of them, we find collections of tokens. And so clearly they are things that could be bundled and then moved around. Mm -hmm. Um, and, what then starts to get interesting from my point of view is that often these clay balls have seal impressions on them. So they're not just moving them around, but someone is taking an, a, a, a mark of authority. And this, these are, um, have you talked about seals at all? We not can, an awful lot. Okay. So go, uh, as much detail as you feel like going into is absolutely right. fine. Okay. 
So seals are this um, are these objects, and they could be uh, early on they were stamps, um, and we think about them just in the way that if we've if you've seen an old movie or if, or if you've um, uh, we think about see them. Um, I work in in Turkey today uh, in archaeolog uh, at an archaeological site in Turkey, and and in Turkey they're still using stamps um, on business documents. And so these are objects that that were some or indicated some form of authority, and they were usually made out of stone and they were carved with a design so that the impression made on something soft, which is clay, um, can be could be recognized. And so you could identify something that's marked with someone's seal as having belonged to them or been been marked by them um, at around. 3800 BC or so, maybe 4000 BC or so, um, the Mesopotamians moved from using stamps to using cylinders to roll um, as seals. So they go from stamp seals to cylinder seals, so small cylindrical objects, um, maybe three to five centimeters in height, and they roll those across clay. Um, and so those clay balls that we have containing tokens have these seals rolled across them. And so those seal designs could be recognized, presumably, um, and could be identified. And then that suggests that all of that stuff could be moved, could be moved in some sort of trade transaction or some sort of interchange between people, um, and that the person on the receiving end of the clay ball, and presumably then also a whole bunch of objects, mm -hmm. would recognize, okay, so... Peter sent me all of these things. That's his seal impression. Let me open that up and see what he's, he's sending me. Okay, he's sending me these tokens. These tokens mean six sheep. Here are six sheep. Great. That's a way of, of sort of um, confirming or affirming that transaction. Kind of makes sure that the person charged with the delivering the sheep didn't sneakily take one away exactly. for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and so they move from, from then that the token system to a combination of tokens and the clay balls, which then move at a distance so that you no longer would have to have face-to-face -face interaction when exchanging something. Um, and from that, then we go on to a stage. So, so one of the things I'm kind of interested in as somebody interested in process and materials is it's hard to roll a cylinder on a ball. Yeah. <laughs> the dexterity that that is taken uh that it takes to actually do that makes you think okay that probably wasn't that that was something that somebody who is really good with clay and good with manipulating objects must have been doing eventually when we get our first tablets both at uruk and also in iran they are not inscribed with signs yet but they are sealed with cylinder seals and then instead of tokens they've impressed numbers on them. And those numbers, uh, at least according to some of the ideas about the development, those numbers reproduce the old token shapes. So they take the token out, that and that more bulky three-dimensional circular thing that was hard to seal, they flatten it out, they squash it, they roll the cylinder seal on it, and they impress the numbers into it. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the stage immediately prior to the actual invention of the signs. Interesting. And do you see, um, so I have more experience with Mesopotamia proper than I do with um, Iran. Do you see the same kind of de development happening in Iran at, in the same kind of time period, or does it work slightly differently? 
No, we we actually we do see it at exactly the same time period in Iran, and we can and because the the sites um, don't have the the problem of using everything as trash, mm. but instead are actually excavated and stratified, we can see that sequence taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Uruk is actually missing that kind of a sequence. Uruk doesn't have very many clay balls. It doesn't have very many tokens itself. But where we do see the sequence taking place is in Iran. Fantastic. Um, and this is, I think I, I mentioned earlier, this is largely administrative, eco- economic kind of uses for mm-hmm. writing rather than a literary or religious, which comes much, much later. Right. Right. Fantastic. Thank you. Are there any examples of pre-writing symbolism in societies which did not develop into writing? Yes. So among the things that we just we find, well, that, so the tokens are are one of the things that we think do have a line into writing. Um, but there's an uh, at a lot of sites, contemporary to and even after, um, one of the kinds of symbols that we see is pot marks. Um, so signs that are incised into the bases of pots or into the sides of pots. And they clearly have some sort of significance and they have some sort of symbolic value. And um, there are a number of ideas about what they could be. Um, and uh, probably the best that I've seen is that they were likely ways for a potter to identify his or her pots as they came out of a kiln. If you had a collective firing, then you needed to be able to retrieve the ones that you had made. Um so, so I think that there are probably a lot of good examples like that of, of symbol, symbolic use and symbol use that didn't turn into writing, but that had significance and had, um, that, that were extremely useful to people. So we emailed a little bit uh, beforehand and you mentioned that some of your ideas are not quite mainstream. Would ah. you mind going into that a little bit? Cause I think people would be interested. Sure. I think, um, so, so among the things that I, so in that, description that I gave earlier about um, about the development of writing and especially the steps prior to writing, um, uh, especially using things like cylinder seals as markers of identification. Um, among my publications, I have suggested that um, the earliest scribes actually perhaps were the cylinder seal carvers um, because they were people who already understood how symbolism worked, how imagery worked, how people, how people interpret imagery. Um, and a lot of the, the, this is, this comes from some of my work with the lexical texts. A lot of the individual motifs on cylinder seals in the late fourth millennium are then the topics of lexical texts. Mm-hmm. So the lexical texts, so those word lists are lists of people, of metal objects, of pots, of birds, of animals, all of which also appear on the cylinder seal. That's very so interesting. I, I, I put together some of those ideas and, and have suggested that the cylinder seals, the cylinder seal carvers as communication specialists were the natural people to, at least if they weren't, if they weren't the only scribes, mm-hmm. they may have become at least one group of scribes mm-hmm. in the earliest, for the earliest tablets. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, and do you see, um, some kind of social stratification maybe between those who have the cylinder seals and use them? Um, do you know if there's particular iconography that appears to be like specialized in a, in a way that maybe not everyone has access to? 
there's definitely well yeah the the cylinder seal imagery is very is is really complicated by the time we get to uruk and the time we get to cities there's a lot of um there are many different types of scenes um and then there's a, a set of cylinder seals that seem to be simply um, that are contemporary that seem to be simply um patterns or um quickly carved items um, some people see the difference between things that seem to be extremely representational versus those more geometric mm -hmm. and simple and schematic as perhaps being a difference between public and private seals. So the public institutions, the palace, if there was one, the temples had the, the more complicated imagery, um, private people might have had the, the simpler imagery, or that that might be a stratification between two levels of, of administrative hierarchy. Um, there are definitely among the, the motifs on the seals are representations of a person who is thought to be, um, uh, the first ruler, the N or the, um, the man in the net skirt. He's <laughs> often called because the imagery seems to suggest that he's wearing this nicely patterned, probably flannel type shirt, um, that has or tweed or something like that <laughs> has this uh, box like pattern on it. Um, and so, uh, and he appears on some, so presumably that's a seal that's associated with the administrators or, um, the, the highest level of administration. So there's definitely that, um, mm. going on as well. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I would like to ask about, um, your experience working at a, um, a liberal arts college mm -hmm. because I'm, obviously at a, a larger institution. Um, so when you're teaching, do you have to cover like all of ancient history ever, or are you able to specialize more? Well, <laughs> when I, when I first arrived at my job, the, 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 um, the one ancient art, uh, and my, my job originally was, is, uh, my, my department has been renamed art and archeology, span but originally I was at an, in an art history department. Um, and so the one ancient art course covered everything from earliest Egypt to the Romans in one semester, one 15 week semester. And so I quickly did away with that and divided <laughs> that at least between Egypt and Mesopotamia and the classical world. And we still do have that division, but mm -hmm. I also now teach, I teach a prehistory, world prehistory class. And so I do everything from evolution to the Incas wow. in that class. Um, I do an archeology span of native North America, which does everything from the, the emigration to the Americas through Cahokia and, and the, um, uh, well, in contact period also. So yeah, I cover a lot of ground. You must be extraordinarily sure. well-read. <laughs> well, I learned how to do research really well. <laughs> so some days I'm definitely just a couple minutes before ahead of the students. Um, but I, but it's also, and it, it allows me, especially because I, my, a lot of my research topics and my interest in technology applies to not just, you know, Mesopotamia, but I'm also interested in similar things going on in terms of pottery development or metallurgy development in other places. And so that also can inform the, the uh, interest in the emergence of writing allows me to look at things like the Chinese um, the development of the oracle bones and other examples from from other cultures. So that kind of comparative perspective is also really good. That's but yes, at a liberal arts college, often you have to be very, you have to be a generalist. So um, let's see, on, on Tuesday, I'll be teaching the Odyssey and early bronze for Israel. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
must never get bored then. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Um, thank you. We have a couple of questions and then I think we will wrap this up. Is there any thought on when more complex grammatical structures occurred? So about a thousand years after after we get our first tablets, um, in the Ur three period in particular, we start to have very complex grammatical structures and we see sort of the classic Sumerian with with clear um uh, marking of direct objects and indirect objects and ablative case and everything else that, that we look for as, as grammar nerds, um, different, uh, tenses and moods and things like that. Um, so for Sumerian, the, it's the, the Ur 3 period that really, um, sees kind of the culmination of all the earlier developments. And Josh, actually, for those who don't know, Josh wrote his dissertation on um, Emesol, which is uh, like a liturgical Sumerian, which is like a sub-dialect uh, of the language. And he wrote on unorthographic Sumerian Emesol, uh, which is uh, Emesol that is written in a non-standardized fashion. Extraordinarily specialized Very, field. very yeah. specialized. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was talking to... Um, Dr. Al Rashid, who's a postdoc at Oxford uh, on Twitter this morning, um, and she was saying that she'd much rather read um, first millennium medical texts over old Babylonian letters simply because it's what she's used to and it's what she reads all the time. And I said, oh, give me old Babylonian letters any day of the week. Um, but then I followed it up with, but Josh would much rather have unorthographic Sumerian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you get very um, specialised when you're writing a PhD. Um, and then if you if you go on to uh, have a, a more specialised um, paid position you get kind of i don't want to say myopic but you get your favorites and you like to stick with those huh. I, when i was a, a graduate student i had a friend with two children they were probably eight and six and um they were sitting in the back seat of a, of a car and their mom and and a friend were in the front seat of the car talking about old babylonian versus neo-assyrian um uh, orthography and and the the way that the signs looked and the older child looked at the younger child and said it's okay they're just talking about which chicken had the nicer foot <laughs> <laughs> that's not terribly inaccurate no not at all <laughs> oh wonderful um uh what counts as writing and what was the first message yeah <laughs> and that that really is that is just the, to put you on the spot of the matter is what 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 counts as writing. So so one of the things I I am also interested in, and it, I, a lot of the the shows that you've done also are, have been about Sumerian literature. So one of the things I also am very interested in is the story in in Sumerian about the first writing, which is the story of Enmerkar, who is the king of Uruk, Naturally. who is one who, according to the the, the Sumerian myth, invented writing, um, and he happened to invent writing. It, as part of a contest of wills and contest of wits against an Iranian king. So I think that that shows some reflection of the, the interchange going on between Uruk and, and Iran as part of that sort of conflict that was remembered in the myth. Mm -hmm. So it's a story in which basically they trade riddles with one another. Um, and so the king of Iran keeps, keeps posing a riddle to the to the king of Uruk and Merkar, and the king of Uruk and Merkar keeps solving those riddles. And so um, at the point at which the final riddle comes from Iran and has to be answered, um, the king the uh, and Merkar decides on a 
on a, an oral answer and this poor messenger is having to run back and forth remembering exactly what it is that the riddle was and then what his king said and finally in Merkar, rather than trying to get the scribe to remember writes it down and writes it down on a tablet and the, the messenger goes off, the king in, in Iran, the king of Arata, gets the message and realizes that he has no, he, he, he can't match wits. Mm -hmm. So that would be the first message, whatever <laughs> it was, that Enmerkar said, which we don't know, but it was the answer and, and there was no way because you always have to have two people for communication, for that, for written communication, the, the sender and the receiver. And in that case, the receiver didn't have the knowledge that he needed to receive the message. <laughs> I love that message. It's wonderful. It's it's one of my favorites. It's a good one. Uh, good so, do you have any basic commerce tablet that you think is funny or peculiar? <sighs> From what I remember, they tend to be pretty standardized. They are. I I can't think of. No, that's a really nice question. But I think they are pretty standard. There are usually two sheep and three goats and five cows and things like that. Um, and we definitely have. Um, amusing or amusing now commercial texts from later periods um i'm thinking of ayanatsia oh, maybe the copper merchant it th there's been a, a website making the rounds recently um his copper is substandard and he has a, a letter from a, a trade partner complaining that that he sent him substandard copper and how dare you uh, so that exchange is is rather amusing and that's um, similar to in the Amarna tablet, that yes. the, that the um, Mesopotamian king complains that the Egyptian king sent him a whole bunch of gold, but when he melted it down, it was just a tiny amount of gold. I know, which is just <laughs> is is rude, really. If you're going yeah. to send me gold, so you may as well just send it as proper gold rather than a wooden mm -hmm. core. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Russell, this has been really interesting and Great. informative, and thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. If you want to know more about the topics discussed in this episode, a suggested bibliography can be found in the episode description. Thank you for joining us for this first episode of the Digital Hammurabi podcast. We hope you found it interesting. If you like what you've heard, then please do take a look at our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com forward slash digitalhammurabi, and consider supporting the show by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash digitalhammurabi. We can be found on Twitter at digi underscore Hammurabi. And if you have any comments, questions or concerns, then please do email us at digitalhammurabi at gmail.com. And remember, until next time, always ask, how do you know that? <laughs>